Welcome to SageCast, the podcast of Pomona College. I'm Patty Vest. And I'm Mark Wood. In these extraordinary times, we're coming to you from our various homes as we all shelter in place. This season on SageCast, we're talking to Pomona faculty and alumni about the personal, professional, and intellectual journeys that have brought them to where they are today. Today, we're talking with Associate Professor of Economics, Manisha Goel, who specializes in labor and development economics. Welcome, Manisha. It's good to have you with us here in, here in cyberspace. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you for having me. This is exciting. So how have you adjusted to life in these very strange times? I don't know that I have really adjusted. Uh, the whole last eight months feel like a blur, but also I am never off. Like even during the night, my brain is functioning more than I wanted to. Uh, yeah, I know how that feels. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but you know, sometimes when I feel totally overwhelmed, I pause and I reflect on all the things that are still going right in my life and feel gratitude compared to the amount of unprecedented suffering, not just in the United States, but also in India, which is my home country and everywhere mm -hmm. else around the world. It's just, I am so much more fortunate. That's it great outlook to have and a good segue into our next question. Um, tell us a little bit about your early years in India. Um, and and if you if you can remember that point where your what sparked your interest interest in economics, was it early on or when was that? Yeah, it has to do with my family, but also some of my own, uh, the way my brain functions and my some personality traits. So my mother, uh, was an economist in her previous life. Um, and she actually started lecturing at an undergraduate college in West Bengal, which is a state in India. Um, and then at some point she, while she was pursuing her master's in economics, she was also doing law on the side. Um, and she was, she was doing that just for fun. And then, you know, many things in her life happened just for fun and then turned out to be bigger deals than she ever thought they would become. And so while she was doing law just for fun, she also appeared for you know, some judicial exams just for fun. And then she, she qualified uh, and then her father said, why don't you try it out? And so she did just for fun. <laughs> and she ended up becoming the first female judge in the state of West Bengal. Mm -hmm. uh, and this was in, I wanna say, 1969 or 1970. Um, and then she moved to New Delhi, which is, uh, which is where I was born. Um, and, you know, growing up all throughout my life, I was seeing my mom, you know, deal with cases and she would sometimes come and talk to us about, you know, the disparities in our vast country um, and how the law deals with various disparities and what does it do in terms of worker rights and so on. So I could see that her economics training was influencing her as a judge also. And I also got to see that law and economics are extremely intertwined. Uh, one cannot exist in vacuum from another. Um, so I got into economics for that reason. Um, there were too many lawyers and judges in my family by that time, so I, I didn't want to do that. <laughs> I, was, I was trying to be different, uh, but I, I ended up not being so different. Um, so I, I got into economics thinking that I will actually pursue law and economics, uh, but I, I obviously didn't do, law and economics is not a field of research that I do. Um, but my father was a chemistry professor, um, and I adored the way he did research and he was like so excited when he would find something new and his students absolutely adored him. And I used to wonder like, I must be underestimating my father because I don't have such glorious words to say about him as his students. <laughs> uh, so I think that was, that was also an influence into what I ended up doing. So, you know, even though I was trying to be different, I ended up not being very different. I did economics, which is what my mom did. And I took on the profession, which my dad had. Um, but also economics, I also got to economics by way of elimination. Uh, I, I was good at memorizing things, but I was not, I didn't enjoy memorizing. 
And in economics, you don't have to memorize too much. It's, it's intuition and it is logic and you can always retrace your steps when you don't understand how you got to a certain point and you can retrace because of the logic. So the more I did economics, the more I saw that our lives were just completely governed by economics and it was always going to be relevant no matter which part of the world we were in and what time in the you know, timeline of planet Earth we are in, it will always be relevant. And so I got into economics for that reason. Your mom has a quite a distinct version of fun. <laughs> <laughs> so you began your higher education in, in India. You did your master, your bachelor's and your master's there. And then you came to Canada and the U.S. Can you tell us about those transitions? Those have got to have been huge transitions for you. Yeah. So, um, Actually, when I went to University of British Columbia, that was the first time I left India. And it was also the first time I left home. Uh, unlike the United States, students in India don't leave home. Typically, when they are in college, they leave home only if they're going to a college which is outside of you know, where they live. Uh, but I was fortunate to be living in New Delhi, which had the best university in the country. Um, so I didn't, I didn't leave home until I actually left for University of British Columbia. I applied there for a PhD. But Canadian universities often require students to do a master's again. So they admitted me for the master's program and I had every intention of just staying there for PhD, like transitioning from master's to PhD. Um, but for, you know, long story, I, I didn't stay there for PhD. I moved to the Ohio State University. Um, and when I got there, I actually already knew even before I got there, who is the professor that I want to work with. Um, and I didn't know that I could be bold enough and forward enough to just actually go up to his office and tell him, you are the reason I'm here. Uh, <laughs> so I why was, was he the reason you were there? Why, what, how did you know him? No, uh, Yeah, so, you know, when I was, uh, when I got into Ohio State, I also got into some other places. So in trying to decide where I want to be for my PhD, um, I started looking at, you know, professors' profiles before, much more than I did when I was still applying for PhD programs. Um, and this professor, his name was, uh, his name is Bruce Weinberg. He studied um, the interplay between technology, technological change, and how it affects workers. Um, so that is, that was extremely fascinating to me. And I could see that it would apply, although his research was US-centric, I could see that it would apply to any country that is experiencing technological change. And we feel today like a technological change is this new thing, but if you look into the history of mankind, then you know that technological change has existed as long as human civilization has existed. <laughs> yeah. um, but you know, it has myriad effects. Um, and since we are living through these times, we feel like, we, we know that it is like far more reaching than you just imagine. You can understand if you are just observing it as a lay person. So I was really drawn to that. Um, and that's why I, that was one of the big reasons I chose Ohio State. What um, inspired you to pursue an academic career? You told us you didn't want to, uh, at the beginning, you didn't want to pursue it, what, uh, what, what your family had been uh, involved with, but what was the point that like, okay, this, this is what I'm going to do? So again, I'm going to be very honest and it may not appeal to some of the listeners, but you know, when I was doing my undergrad in economics, the thing to do at that time in India was do your, do your bachelor's in econ and then go do an MBA. But my father, being himself a super academic person, um, told me in so many words, I don't want you to do MBA because I don't want you to use your intelligence to sell soap. Uh, <laughs> I like your dad. <laughs> your dad size sounds like mine. But <laughs> so I was heavily influenced by that. And then I, I got into you know, my master's program and there too, there was tons of campus recruitment and many master's econ students went into the same kinds of things that MBA students got recruited for. But because of his influence and my worry about whatever I'm choosing, will he approve or disapprove of it, meant that I just kept going. And I also loved economics, 
So I, I campus recruitment for all these corporates was, was never, never on my radar. So we list uh, the story at Ohio State. Um, we now know why you chose your mentor, but what did you do? Did you go talk to him? Uh, yeah, so I went to Ohio State and he and another professor became, almost became like my co-mentors, although Bruce Weinberg was my primary advisor. There was an, there is another economist, uh, Joseph Kaboski, who was there, who also studied uh, technological change, but also trade. And while my professor, my main mentor, Bruce, used to study all this from a labor economist perspective and was more applied micro in his methods, Joe Kaboski was is a macroeconomist. So the two of them heavily influenced what I ended up doing, which was to understand how offshoring, which is trade and intermediate goods, which is the majority of trade that happens in the world now, uh, how that affects technology. And through that uh, interplay between trade and technological change, how is wage inequality in the developed countries as well as in developing countries getting impacted? Um, and therefore, what given that I found and you know, economic, much, a lot of economic research tells us that both trade and, and technological change really increase inequality in countries, and at some point, inequality is bad for economic growth itself. It's not just bad for society. Um, so there are huge policy implications uh, uh, for the influence of both trade and technological change on labor outcomes. So uh, that is what I did in my uh, dissertation for my PhD. I continue to pursue that strand of research, but after coming to Pomona, I have obviously um, you know, diversified more in my research. How have you diversified? What are some of the things that you are now? Yeah, so I would say that there are two other areas of work that I have added to my trade and technological change and how they impact labor research. So one is, um, you know, in standard uh, economics, we think of firms or businesses as these black box entities that exist to make profits. And that is true, firms exist to make profits, but um, what I have always believed, and I mean, it's not just a belief, it is empirically true, that firms are not these inanimate entities, right? Firms are made up of people. And one strand of my work examines how um, the identities of people who work for firms at the top echelons of these firms affect the decisions that they take for the firms and whether this is ultimately uh, good for the business's bottom line, which is to make profits, or bad. Um, and I have so far done this uh, in the Indian context, where the majority Hindu society is divided artificially into these into these stratas, called the and that is broadly called the caste system. Um, and in this stratified hierarchical system, there are these four and de facto five categories. Uh, from highest to lowest. And within, and within these categories, there are also many, 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 many hundreds of subcategories. And these subcategories are really what people uh, identify with, even much, much more than their broad categories. So much so that marriages in India happen to be within these subcategories. So in our, I used some data to uh, identify people's subcategories as well as the broad categories and religion based on their last names. Uh, and in our data, we were able to identify 472 categories, subcategories of people. And imagine the you know, granularity of that relative to, for example, race in the US economy, we are thinking about blacks, whites, Hispanics, Asian, uh, Native American right, broadly these four, these four or five categories. But in India, we have like, just because of this artificial construct in the Hindu society, we have 472 plus categories that at least I identified in the data, there could be more. So what I did, what I have been doing in that uh, strand of research spurred by building this data set is to understand how people's identity uh, along these subcategories affect who gets hired in various firms 
what decisions do they make for the firms uh, big big investment decisions whether it affects um, uh, banking relationships of firms like who gets loans and who does not get loans uh, how it affects entrepreneurship uh, firm growth post entry and firm survival like how do you do you survive and thrive as a business based on your identity along those uh, subcategories and then ultimately what does it mean for the broad allocation of resources in the economy and whether if you have all this discrimination and biases and in group favoritism along all these narrowly defined subcategories what does it mean for the prosperity of the country as a whole so while i have uh, so far done this only with data using using data from india it's broadly applicable and uh, i'm thinking of provided i get the data i'm thinking of doing something similar with regard to racial diversity in us businesses so that's one other area of work that i have added to my portfolio and then the th third one uh, was actually inspired by the way i built the data set for this identity in firms uh, work which is that i got into text analysis um so i i'm still learning by doing i haven't been trained formally in uh, natural language processing methods um but in this strand of work which is more corporate finance than trade but in the future maybe i will you know mesh the two together but right now what i'm doing is i'm using the reports that publicly traded companies have to put out by law by regulation every 3 months these are quarterly reports and they, in, in addition they also have to release these annual reports is the target audience are shareholders because these are publicly traded companies so they require they are required by law to have a certain level of transparency with their shareholders um and in addition to these two quarterly and annual reports uh, firms uh, also in many countries are required to do a conference call with their biggest investors and analysts who are trying to predict what's going to happen for this firm and those are called um, earnings calls and those transcripts of those earnings calls are also supposed to be filed by with the securities and exchange commission in the us and a similar counterpart organization in india so there are three projects um three yeah three three projects perhaps that i am pursuing with uh, text analysis of these reports so one is uh, very very recent it started uh, post pan you know after the lockdown happened um i'm we are trying me and um, also a colleague in the econ department prof, uh, michelle zemel and a cs computer science professor at harvey mudd her name is alexandra shofield so the three of us with the help of superb students of pomona who are working as our ras uh, we are trying to figure out how um the pandemic has created disruptions for firms what is the nature of these disruptions and how these disruptions at the firm level spread through the supply chain uh, to impact the macro economy uh so that's that's one project and how do we understand disruptions the only way to truly understand how a firm is impacted and in what ways the firm is in, in impacted is when they have conversations with people so one way of having conversation is to formally release those reports where they owe the, owe to their shareholders some honesty about here is how the business is impacted by the pandemic and then in the earnings call report they are being grilled Uh, and they are being put on the spot like the top managers there is only so much sugar coating and massaging of their message that they can do in those earnings call reports so we think that to understand how firms are disrupted and to what extent using their narrative text text textual narrative is a good approach so that's so that's one project with this text analysis the other one which is also using reports released by firms but this this time in india and uh the day we had elections in 2016 in india uh, in in the us the same day um india suddenly demonetized 86% of cash that was in circulation in india so what that means is essentially that there were two uh denominations of rupee bills that were in circulation and 86% of cash in circulation was in those two denominations and effective midnight 
And with one hour notice, the, the Prime Minister of India suddenly announced on national television that starting midnight, and this was at 11 p.m., starting midnight, those two currency bills are no longer going to be legal tender. So it's just trash, basically. Um, and there were several stated goals uh, for this sudden announcement. Uh, some of it had to do with corruption, and some of it was, had to do with uh, pushing the economy towards more digitized uh, payment methods, which are more easily trackable and can be therefore taxable, and it's not so easy to evade taxes. And a third major uh, pro uh, stated goal was to plug the flow of cash to terrorists. And that has, you know, it is a long problem, long-standing problem in India. Terrorism is a, is a major problem. So these were the stated objectives. And, you know, one economists debate to a great extent whether this was a prudent policy or not. But one thing they don't debate on is that the implementation of the policy was totally botched. Um, so in the aftermath of this botched implementation, there was a whole lot of uncertainty in the economy because 86% of cash had been sucked out of the system and it was not getting replaced fast enough. Um, so what we are doing again with the reports of companies in India, publicly traded companies in India, we're trying to figure out how a sudden policy change like this one affected uncertainty at the level of firms and whether to what extent this uncertainty was different in different sectors of the economy because you know some sectors are heavily cash dependent and others may not be. Um, and, and therefore to understand the uncertainty not at the level of the entire economy, but to at the level of the firms and how firms deal with this sort of uncertainty. And the obvious candidates to understand uh, what the, the effects of uncertainty are investment because investment is a forward looking activity. If you don't know what's going to happen in the future, you are really scared to take on big budget investments and hiring. Um, because you know, if you hire workers and then you cannot keep them gainfully employed, then you are either stuck with them or you lay them off. And then you have wasted all this time and effort hiring these workers only to lay them off pretty soon. So, so that's what, it's an ongoing project, but that's what, these are the two, project, uh, the, uh, two outcomes that we will look at. And then the third project, which is you know, very nascent, um, is still uh, trying to see whether we can gather all the data for it, is to understand how amid the pandemic, uh, firms' uh, public faces, like on Twitter, differ from their honest, or to the extent that we can find honest faces, through these earnings calls. Uh, and, just, just contrast their public faces to what's actually going on in these firms. So, I mean, th this is all of these are fascinating. Um, I'd I'd like to back up and get you to drill down a little bit on one of them, though the caste system uh, work you were doing really it strikes me as very interesting. And I um, the four hundred plus levels. What, what did you find there? What have you found there? Is it still ongoing? Do you have results from that, 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 yeah, uh, so, that research? I, I'm curious to know how, how much discrimination does go on still in, in terms of the caste system. Yeah, so two projects are under review uh, at, at journals. So they are as complete as they can be before we get you know, lots of comments from referees. Um, so in the first project where we, where we actually introduced these data, uh, showed that boards of directors of large publicly traded Indian companies are heavily concentrated on the basis of caste. And it doesn't matter whether you're a high caste or a low caste, you know, in that hierarchy and within the subcategories of that, those broad hierarchical levels. Uh, even if you are in a lower caste, uh, group, if you were an incumbent of a certain caste, then you are likely to hire more directors to your company who are of the same caste as you. So it is more a story of in-group bias or favoritism as opposed to discrimination, mm -hmm. right? Although one obviously leads to the other. By, by favoring people of your own type or kind, you have discriminated against everybody else, right? So 
we with a whole lot of statistical analysis we showed that you, yes the boards of directors in india are heavily caste concentrated uh they continue to be so in the modern day in india like we have 20 years worth 20 plus years worth of data and this uh, concentration on the, along caste doesn't seem to abate at all um and that this is bad for the firm's performance measures so the more concentrated the boards are the worse firms perform in terms of profits and returns on investments um and other such similar measures that was the first project the second in the second project we started thinking about okay why is it that uh, these performance measures are negative so let's unpack um so we said okay let's think about what kinds of investment decisions firms have to make and one biggest one of the most important investment decisions that comes to mind uh, is mergers and acquisitions so firms and these are large publicly traded companies that are responsible that account for about 86% of india's total gdp so these are very very big companies and so when they enter mergers and acquisition deals they are also large investment deals so in this second project we found that mergers and acquisitions are heavily along caste lines so if one firm is dominated by a certain caste they would tend to acquire another firm which is also dominated by the same caste as themselves and everybody is hurt in the process the shareholders of the acquiring company are hurt the shareholders of the target acquired company are hurt the long term performance of the merged entity the merged firm is also worse so the only people who end up benefiting are the directors themselves of those castes that were the influencing castes in that deal so we find that the people who belonged to that dominant caste in a firm that ended up acquiring the other firm which was also of the same caste those firms get retained on the retained firm on the merged firms uh, board to a much greater extent than the directors who were not of that dominant caste and second their compensation packages as directors increases four times or perhaps eight times i don't remember exactly but much much more than the compensation packages of other directors who did not belong to that caste so everybody is hurting only the pockets of the directors are becoming fatter so uh that that's the second project's findings um and in the third project which is ongoing uh we don't know what results we'll find there um but that project says okay if we have found such massive influence of caste in firms that are publicly traded and we would expect that these are the most modern firms who do what it takes to make the most profits even though these kinds of firms are so heavily influenced by caste and what must be happening in 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 firms that are not so accountable to the public who are smaller firms and you know they are not so big deal perhaps perhaps the caste influence must be much much more and in fact it may be leading to much perverse outcomes for the economy or the country as a whole so in that we have uh, the project that we are doing for that question is to look at firm entry in the formal sector of india so these are small mom and pop shops who are who have it enough together that they are not just informal firms they are actually formal firms but they could be you know five person businesses or two people businesses or one one person freelancing um so we have the population of all firms that have entered uh in the formal sector in india over several years and we are trying to understand how caste networks of these founders or entrepreneurs affects their success um how much capital they are able to raise as a as a newborn firm and whether their caste networks help them survive relative or uh, survive at a higher rate relative to those founders who do not have any caste networks in that region or in that industry so the work is ongoing we don't know what results we'll find but that's what we are doing now Anisha, you've talked to, to us a lot about your really fascinating research. Can you tell us about the process? How do you go about? How do you go about your research? Um, you've mentioned that you have colleagues, uh, Pomona colleagues, and Harry Mud colleague colleagues um, that you work with, and also students. What does that process look like? Look like, and what are the roles of these different people? Um. So, you know, most of the times. uh it doesn't have to be true for all uh, you know all all economists or all uh, researchers 
but in my in my research career i am often the person who generates the idea and it may begin with a very vague idea and then by brainstorming and talking out loud uh with people who i think will be the right collaborators for this that that idea becomes more specific and more concise and more focused um but it has just coincidentally happened that the idea often comes in my head and it could be any you know i don't have to be pouring at a screen to come up with an idea like you just walk around and you are i might be cooking i might be tossing and turning in my bed and not getting sleep uh and something vague might pop into my head and i wouldn't even perhaps realize that this popped into my head and it is just a passing thought and then if it has some if i don't have an immediate obvious answer to that question then i would perhaps start looking up like is is this has this been done before has this what what is the current research what does it have to say on this question and that in my own mind it will help me uh say okay this is a useless idea this is total trash or it is it is over and done with people have talked enough about it i don't have anything to do here but sometimes it is not the not the case and right and that more often than not it is either total trash or it has already been beaten to death enough that i don't have much to add to it but on there are there are some rare occasions when you have stumbled upon something which might have some value um and that's when i i i start talking to people who i think might be interested in the project uh not everything that i do is is in authorship with others some some projects are just my own um uh so so that's that's the idea generation stage and then we brainstorm and people will push back and there is you know no politeness at that stage like this is crazy and this is stupid no but you this this doesn't make sense all kinds of phrases are, are thrown around and nobody takes it personally uh and then once we think that okay this this might hold water then we think about okay how would we actually go about answering that question um uh, and usually that is a two step process one is what is the data that you need uh, do those data already exist or do you have to create those data somehow build a data set from scratch um and then if you had uh, if you were able to gather the right data then how would you econo- econometrically truly address the thing that you are after because you know two things might happen at the same time but that doesn't mean that one caused the other so the common thing to say for that is correlation is not causation so in in economics we are really interested in causal inference and causal relationships and uh, it's it's hard to come by unless you're doing a, an experiment in a controlled setting where you have treatment groups and control groups other than that if you're always using observational data then causal analysis uh, is hard and so the second step in that research strategy brainstorming is how would you get how would you find the right econometric methods to address that causality uh and then you know both of these things it's not like one step second step third step and fourth step like you can keep with revisiting across the steps you know it is not a a very streamlined process uh and then once you have the data ready uh and the econometric strategy ready then you start getting your hands dirty with okay let's let's torture the data enough until they conve- confess essentially um and then the final stage is to write up your results and often times as i said it's not a streamlined process often times when you're writing you will realize loopholes in your own thinking and you will go back and try to find some other data or redo the econometric analysis um and so on and then it is time when when the when you're ready for the show then you then you basically present it uh, to various kinds of audiences um you want the audiences to be harsh rather than friendly because you would rather get harsh audience in an in a in a state at a stage when it is, it does not have like uh, terrible consequences for your work as opposed to when it actually reaches a journal like hopefully you have addressed many such comments such that the journal that you are targeting you actually have a good shot at that uh so i think so in my in in my research life i am obviously as i mentioned before often times the idea generator uh but obviously i'm involved in every other stage uh, intrinsically uh in terms of the projects that i'm collaborating with um 
the Parimad professor and the Pomona econ professor, uh, Michelle Zemmel. Um, you know, I, I don't know that there is very stark lines along which we divide labor. Um, but in the, like between Michelle and me, uh, there, there might be some uh, stark lines, but we, we often take each other's roles just to make sure there are two brains being put on everything. Um, but with the Harvey Mudd professor, who's, you know, who's, who's her own, whole uh, dissertation was on natural language processing methods. Well, in that case, the, the roles are very clear, right? She is the one who is uh, helping us do the text analysis and uh, de facto teaching me in the process. Um, and then I do the economic uh, analysis of the data that is gen generated out of the text analysis. Um, and then the, the, the way RAs work is often that uh, the CS, the computer science part of the coding work is often done by this CS professor in collaboration with the students that we have as RAs, uh, who are mostly Pomona students. We once had a Harvey Mudd student too, but mostly they are Pomona students. And these Pomona students are learning on the job with the uh, professor from Harvey Mudd, but also they are being heavily taught by our HPC director, Ash, uh, Asya Skriar. Um, so she is like totally amazing in you know bringing students on board and uh, having so much confidence in them that she can just throw all these uh, intimidating things at them but support them enough that they are not going to be so intimidated that they're going to run away. Um, so one student that has become like absolutely integral uh, to actually one of the projects that I should have mentioned before, but I did not, is uh, Chris Nardi, who may be an econ major eventually, but right now he hasn't declared uh, econ. Uh, but with him and the Harvey Mutt professor and I, we are using the text of um, job ads posted on various websites over almost 10 years to understand um, how machine learning and artificial intelligence uh, sort of skills are being demanded, how and what kinds of skills uh, within these broad umbrella terms are truly in demand, uh, what kind of skills they complement, and what kind of skills they are replacing. And this is the, you know, the newer project in that trade and technological change and how it affects the labor market, the, the thing that I did during my PhD. This is a continuation of, of that research. And so Chris Nardi has been um, so integral to that project that uh, Alexandra and I decided that perhaps we should make him a co-author because without him, this would be completely impossible. Like, just totally impossible. And he is amazing. He's like a sponge who absorbs everything and you don't have to go and check his work and he's thorough and he owns up when he's made a mistake, not hiding it, nothing. Um, so yeah, so that's the project that he's uh, integrally involved with. I'm, I'm not sure how to ask this question, so I'm just gonna kind of throw it out. <laughs> and uh, um, I'm interested in, in your thoughts about it income inequality in this country and, and in India um, and the trajectories, the, the, the effect, what should, should non-economists like Patty and me know about that? Um, so inequality in the US is at unprecedentedly high levels. Inequality in India, as also in most other developed countries and developing countries, is extremely high and has perhaps never been as high as it, in, at least in the modern times, has never been as high as it is now. Um, two factors that are directly responsible for this are international trade and technological change. And the way technological, technological change has not always contributed to inequality growth, uh, but the way it is contributing to it now is that starting in the late 1960s, right, computers became accessible even to families because they became small enough that they could fit on a table. So when they became small enough, uh, businesses around the country started adopting them in their, for their operations and whatever work they have to do on an everyday basis. And then families began adopting them in their, house, home, in their homes. So people became familiar with computers. 
it was no longer this esoteric machine that only NASA uses, for example, right? Um, so pretty soon it became the norm to be doing things on a computer. And that meant that many things that were being done, like, uh, you know, let's input accounts, let's input attendance of employees, like when did they come in and when did they leave? Those kinds of jobs that were routine in nature could be easily codified. They were replaced by machines. Um, so, and instead, what these machines became really good at is aiding the work of those who have to do problem solving and analytical thinking and unstructured work. They're not doing the same thing every day, every day, every day. And if you are, if you ask them to say to summarize their work in a set of steps, they couldn't do that, right? So those kinds of workers, their jobs became like uh, heavily aided by these this kind of computing technology, and then. In, in early 1990s, the internet um, came about. Uh, uh, I think it was uh, born as a result of the uh, Cold War, but then it came into the mainstream in the 1990s. Um, and that had this another round of technological change, which uh, then uh, spurred yet another set of this kind of replace routine workers' uh, jobs and aid non-routine workers' work that happened. The same kind of technological change actually is occurring in developing countries too, who have much more uh, work, much more uh, proportion of workers who do these sorts of routine work, but now are being replaced by machines. So when you replace lower educated workers who often tend to do these kinds of routine jobs with machines and aid the work of those who do non-routine work who often tend to be higher educated workers, then you're increasing inequality and it doesn't matter that it's a developed country or a developing inequality will increase. So that's happening around the world. There are very few countries who are untouched by this kind of technology creating inequality phenomenon. And add to that uh, offshoring, which is essentially between developed and developing countries. So. When you, if you look at your iPhone at the back, it says designed in, Calif designed in California, assembled in China or something like that, it used to say. I don't remember the exact verbiage. But that also is more detailed than a typical product, which you would, if you pick up, it will say made in Honduras or made in China or made in Indonesia or something like that. Ch uh, the reality is that that's only the last stage where the thing was actually shipped from. Chances are that one product, one item or one thing that went into that final good was produced in a country and then it went somewhere else and something else happened, right? So even iPhone, for example, I think 36 countries produce parts that ultimately go into making the iPhone. The iPhone gets assembled in China and then it comes back to the, U to the US. So the idea for the iPhone may have originated in, in California and the, the operating, you know, the software, the iOS may have been designed in, in, in California, but it wouldn't be possible without the contribution of these 36 other countries to actually create and build the iPhone and supply it on a regular basis. So this is offshoring. And often, as I said, this offshoring is, uh, the demand for such work is generated in developed countries. Uh, the supply of these workers will happen in developing countries. And then the products are ready to be sold around the whole world. Uh, so what happens is that in the, in, when the developed country offshores to a developing country, then the workers whose jobs are in direct competition are again the low skilled, lower educated workers who were doing these routine jobs, which were also replaceable with technology, but now are replaceable because much, much, much cheaper skill is available for those jobs in a developing country that have much more, uh, much, much larger numbers of unskilled, lower educated workers who are willing to do it for a fraction of what the low skilled worker would be willing to do it for in the US, for example. So again, offshoring creates inequality in a developed country that is sending the offshore work. But counterintuitively, that same offshore work is not helping create uh, more jobs for unskilled workers in these developing countries. Because if it were, then these developing countries should have seen a reduction in inequality. But what is happening in developing countries is that they are also seeing an increase in inequality, not just because of technological change, but also because of this offshore work. Because when these 
jobs are offshored. I should not say jobs are offshore. I'll, I'll have something to say about that later. But when tasks are offshore from uh, developed to developing countries, who ends up doing those tasks in developing countries are often not the workers who are low skilled in those developing countries. It is the high skilled in those developing countries who end up doing those jobs. So again, even offshoring ends up creating more demand for the relatively high skilled in developing, developing countries. And therefore, again, you have yet another force that is adding to inequality. Uh, the reason I say that jobs are not offshore, tasks are, is because economic research shows, including my own work, that offshoring violate uh, hurts uh, low-skilled workers in the US or other developed countries. It is only hurting them in relative terms. So vis-a-vis high-skilled workers, they are not gaining as much, but they are still gaining. So they are still earning more than they would have in the absence of trade but they are gaining, their, their gains are a fraction of the magnitudes of order, orders of magnitude greater gains that, uh, gains that developed, that skilled workers in developed countries are seeing. So now, what does it mean to have so much inequality? Economic research shows that, you know, some inequality is good. It keeps people's incentives going to work harder and make it, make their own lives better because something better is possible. But at some point, inequality can become high enough that it is bad for the country as a whole. And when I say country, I mean both the society, the civic engagement, the civil body, and obviously the economy. So you can't just say, oh, let's just keep having trade and let's just keep having technological change. Who cares about inequality? Well, you care about inequality because at some point inequality will come back to bite you. Um, and that is exactly what's happening in the US. So ahead of the 2016 election, when nobody ever thought that the result of 2016 would be what it was, and even before uh, we had a candidate Trump in the 2016 election, there was economic research, which you know, didn't, perhaps did not find enough press beyond the world of economists itself, which had shown using data for the US and one paper for the UK that I'm aware of, that in the uh, const like legislative co constituencies or whatever congressional districts, which have been more exposed to the forces of trade. And you cannot really think about forces of technological change being just so compartmentalized as say counties or districts, but for trade, you can often think like that. So the papers had shown that the counties and the congressional districts that are more exposed to trade, uh, those kinds of people in those kinds of regions vote for more extreme candidates. Um, extreme, and when I say extreme, they, they can be both on the left or on the right, but their positions, their policy proposals are very extreme. They are not middle of the, uh, of the voting bloc. And so if you, have very high levels of inequality. And you cannot find an easy way of plugging technological change, then it is, it is human tendency to blame, find someone to blame, right? Um, and if there is a politician who can make use of those, those human sentiments, is, is astute enough to see that that is a common human tendency to blame the system or to blame someone else or to blame someone who doesn't look like you, or to say the whole system is broken and rigged and so on, right? Then you vote for those kinds of candidates. This has been shown in the UK, this has been shown in the US and the, the research is, uh, you know, one paper said that for the US, they were using data for the US, they said more extreme Republican candidates would be elected. Another paper said more extreme Democratic candidates, Democrat candidates will be elected. So. So, so I would say the moral of the story is it's not left or right, it is those who are on the extreme. So, so what is happening, right? Inequality, you find someone to blame, you cannot stop technological change, at least it's not gonna be popular for uh, anybody to say, oh, let's not have AI or let's not have ML and let's not have computers, let's not have internet, right? That's impossible. But if you have to blame someone, then you can say, oh, let's not trade with China. Let's not trade with South Korea. Let's not go, let's not offshore anything to Mexico because well, they are the ones who took all our jobs and they are the ones responsible for all this inequality. The economic viewpoint on this is trade and technological change 
if done right, are really, really good for economic prosperity and standard of living and human well-being. But we know that it creates inequality. It, it has gains, but those gains are unequal. And so it is incumbent on other policies to redistribute these gains. And you know the easiest way to redistribute, and redistribution is a hard policy. I'm not saying that it's, it's like, it's so dumbheaded that people haven't done it so far. It's not, it's, it's fraud. But the easiest thing that one can do is to have progressive taxation and not make the top 1% pay lower, in, lower, tax, lower taxes on the margin than even unemployed workers, right? Like unemployment insurance checks are also taxed. Like how crazy is that? <laughs> but it is. And so if you could have a truly progressive tax system where you are taxing at a higher rate those who are benefiting more from the forces of trade and technological change, and of course there are other forces, I happen to talk about those because that's what I work on, then you would be able to redistribute the gains uh, of trade and technological change. But I don't know why it doesn't happen. It's not, it's not, uh, I, I, that's the political part, which I don't fully understand. But one thing that I guess everybody understands is that if, if money plays a big role in politics, which it does, not just in the US, but I guess around the whole world, then progressive taxation for that reason is, is hard to have. Yeah. Um, and in the US, it's, it's like, I think we are, we are at this juncture where we have to rec reckon with this reality that inequality is high enough that if you don't plug, the, plug this process or at least bend the trajectory, then there will be too much economic chaos, too much political chaos, and it will have long-term detrimental effects. If you don't care about anything else, it will have a long-term detrimental effect on the economy and to the extent that you are affected by the economy, then every single individual is going to be affected by it. That's, I, I wish we had more time to talk about this. I, that, is, that is very, very interesting and sobering. <laughs> um, Definitely but, uh, food for thought. <laughs> yeah, but on that note, we're going to have to wrap this up, I'm afraid. Um, we've been talking with economics professor Nisha Goel uh, thanks, Manisha. This was really interesting. Thank you so much. I enjoyed this conversation. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Manisha. And to all who've stuck with us this far, thanks for listening to SageCast, the podcast of Pomona College. Stay safe and until next time.